okay, let's face it. The lacrosse landscape in Connecticut has long been dominated by Fairfield County. Obviously, teams representing the eponymous conference that bears the county's name are the gold standard. But other schools outside the FCAC, like New Fairfield, Weston, Joel Barlow, and of course Fairfield Prep, have enjoyed success at the state level for a number of years. Success that shines the light even brighter on the southwestern part of the state. But outside of Connecticut's most populous region, there are some great lacrosse programs to be found at both the youth and high school levels. I automatically go to Conard, Hall, Simsbury, Glastonbury. But for my money, the schools in the SCC, the Southern Connecticut Conference, boast some of the historically best lacrosse in the state. With Prep obviously leading the way, along with Daniel Hand and Madison, Xavier in Middletown, and the always tough Cheshire, Guilford has consistently been considered a lacrosse town, one that always seems to be in the mix at any level. I'm Woody Thompson, and this is Lax's Life. Brian White has led a very competitive Guilford High School boys program since 2006. As the head coach of the Guilford Indians, Brian was named Class M Coach of the Year by his peers a very impressive six times. He coaches club ball with the Connecticut Oilers and teaches social studies at Guilford High School, his alma mater. Brian graduated from Plymouth State in New Hampshire back in 2001, and he played defense there for the Panthers. And as the lacrosse landscape in his town and across the whole state has grown by leaps and bounds, it's the guys like Brian White who have played a key role in delivering the quality of lacrosse that all of us in Connecticut now enjoy. And Brian White is our guest today on Lax's Life. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hey, so before we get going, uh, obviously, uh, in the midst of all this uh, insanity, wanted to make sure that everybody in, in your family and the Guilford lacrosse family especially is doing okay and safe and healthy. Uh, I think, you know, luckily we've been pretty much unscathed. Um, we're, we're, we're coming through relatively healthy so far, so I'm just hoping that trend kind of keeps up and continues and, and, and nobody really gets affected by this that badly. Yeah, we're, we're hoping that the responsibility uh, factor is amped up and everybody doesn't come out of this too quickly because everything depends on a slow and steady recovery. So appreciate that. Hey, so we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, this 2020 season that, that really never was, and especially your seniors. Um, you know, wanted to give you a chance to talk about your team and your expectations and but really wanted to give you a chance to talk about the guys uh, who were moving on from the Guilford program and, and what they've meant and, and what you expected out of them this year and, and maybe even if they're going to continue on with the, with the game. Yeah, this group we had this year was going to be really, I think, kind of special. Uh, the group is relatively large for us in terms of class size. Uh, we had about 16 kids in just the one grade alone. Wow. Um, yeah, um, we pretty much, if you look at our roster from top to bottom, we were bringing about like two-thirds of our roster back from the team last year that did really well. We got to the state semifinals in Class M, eventually lost to, to New Fairfield. But the uh, that group this year, if we had a season, I think could have done some pretty special things. So, you know, I was kind of devastated for them when obviously all this stuff rolled around and they had really been working at it and looking forward to it. And they never really got the chance to, to go out and test it out on the field. Um, that's a story, obviously, every school 
at some point it has here in this in this whole situation. But you know, I felt I felt really bad for those kids because you could tell they were they were a tight group of kids. They had worked really hard. A lot of those guys are going on to to, to play in college or they were going to try to play in college, and you know, they just they they kind of got this last one taken from them. You know, nobody's fault, but it's just it's just tough to watch them go through that type of stuff. And I think our season. You know, if all things went right and everything was healthy, it would have been very competitive. We had, you know, we have a tough schedule that we go and we play, and it's it's fun to go go up against some of the better teams in the state and see how we match up. But this year, I think we, we would, uh, I think we could have made some noise if if we had the opportunity. So, what was Class M looking like this year? Was uh, is Wilton back down into M, and it was going to be Wilton, New Canaan, Hand, you guys, who else? So Wilton was going to be back down and in. New Canaan actually had stayed up with the last, I think, the last line that was drawn from what I remember. Um, so it would have been Wilton. It would have been us. It would have been, you know, Madison is always up there contending-wise. Uh, New Fairfield, obviously, still around. They had lost a lot of their talent, but they're always well-coached. Mario does a great job with them. Um, Weston, obviously, was a team coming back that had a ton of talent. They were loaded with kids from the previous year. Um, and then you always get teams that you never really know, and they just come together and they gel and, um, you know, they, they, they can make pushes and, and really make some things interesting. So, you know, Barlow is always one of those programs that's near the top in, in Class M and things like that, too. So you never know what does turn up. But, you know, I feel like obviously you lead teams out and you kind of single them. But there's there's some good programs and good teams there. I think obviously it's it's not the the same as, say, like an L where you have Darianne and you have kind of the New Canaan's and, and everybody else in the world. But it's it's I would say the competitiveness of it is is pretty strong. Yeah, I mean, Class M, uh, definitely, uh, when, even with the loss of Darien, uh, there's that core group of teams, and you're right, obviously, about New Fairfield and what Marty's built there, but, you know, and then a couple of years ago, you had North Haven creeping in, obviously, out of the SCC, like you guys, and I think for a lot of people, that was unexpected. Um, I guess Eric Bailey had a lot to do with that as well, great coach, and, um, yeah. you know, great job with yeah, we, we talk sure. a lot about how youth programs feed feed the high school. And I think, you know, since since I've been involved in the sport in this state, Guilford has just always been there. And whether it's um, a youth program or your high school teams, uh, you know, what 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 happens in a town with a lacrosse culture and and the people who contribute to funneling players to your level and, you know, what do you think the recipe for success is there? I think when you look at it, it has to be consistency from what I can tell. I mean, I've been at Gopher now for a while, um, and we've had varying degrees of success with the amount of ability we've been able to work with the youth program. But I think the general string has always kind of been there where there's some continuity. Um, there's some predictability for kids. They're going into something they could, they could see, right? So it doesn't have to necessarily be this well-mapped out type of thing, but I think it, it does have to have um, some cooperation between the two groups, right? So I know that with the high school, we do we try to do a lot with youth whenever we are available to. We do some winter stuff, um, some ball things clinic-wise. You know, the the dads in there, the coach, they're all relatively eager to learn the sport too, which helps. And I go in and I try and tell them the things that we do. So I think there does need to be some top-down type of things that you do. And I think it varies from level, level, or degree, degree in which – you know, it works for a town. I know for Guilford, we haven't had like this curriculum that's gone like, you know, strict all the way down from like 12th grade down to like first grade, like I know some towns do, but we try to keep like a framework the same um, and teach skills that the kids could obviously learn to be successful and 
you know, try and teach some schemes sometimes for the older kids when, you know, they, they're able to kind of handle those things and grasp those things. But when, when you're talking like little guys, um, cause I have little guys now in, in town, it's like they, they, they they can barely tell the right and left when they're running, never mind, like, you know, how to clear through, how to set a pick, how to do all the other things too. So, um, I think it just, it depends. You got to get a good feed and get a, a good idea of what your, uh, what your youth group is capable of, right? Same time. Sure. So you can't just overwhelm them. And one of the things I've always noticed, um, you know, there's kind of two different types of, of high school lacrosse players. There's the pure athlete who might pick up the game later and recognize it for, you know, just what it is, this this great kind of free, open uh, uh, experience out on the field. And then you've got the, the kid who loves the game and has always played it. I, I don't expect you to take me through 16 seniors, but how many of those 16 guys – have been part of Guilford lacrosse from a, from an early age? I would say if you look at this group, most of this group played in uh, in youth at some point. I, I, would, I would assume pretty much all of them have when I go back and I look at a lot of the kids that are there. Um, we don't necessarily get anymore. I would say the kid who comes out for a year and is actually talented enough to run around, I, I don't think – you know, I think those kids are rare, right? If you get like sure. a kid who comes out as a sophomore, junior at this point, um, most of the kids we get at this point are all skilled, you know, to some degree. They played for a number of years in youth, um, and they come up and play. So I think every kid that we had in the in the in the senior class this year was a youth lacrosse player at some point, right? And probably was a continuous lacrosse player at some point. Um, I know we had a kid, uh, Daisy Jack Daisy, one of our captains this year. I mean, he's played since he was little. I coached his, you know, his older brother and everything else. And you know, these are kids who are, are skilled, you know, and they can go out and they can really do things. Where we spend less time trying to develop the fundamentals, where we just work at the fundamentals and kind of implement them into other places. So as we look to the future with these guys, uh, give us a couple of highlights, whether it's Jack, who you just mentioned, or some of his teammates. Uh, who's going to move on with a level of certainty to try to keep playing? And, you know, what are your thoughts about some of the other guys and their opportunities with the game going forward? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, so Jack's one of our captains. He's going on to play on college. Uh, we have James Wren. He was another one of our captains, too. He's going to play at uh, Western New England college um he's going to play he was a he's a two-year starter for us he's a big boy um i was really interested to see how he, he was going to pan out this year because you know he's like a 6-2 type kid big frame you know good feet can really shoot the ball he's one of our starting attack when last year um so he was he was kind of stage ready to have a big year this year but he's going to go play for one of the better d3 programs um in western new england uh and we have our one of our other senior captains sam barbetti um he's going to be a face-off guy at arcadia down in um, Pennsylvania, uh, that's a pretty competitive D3 school, relatively new program, but he's going to go down there and, and face off. So we had kids mostly at the D3 level going to, going out and play, you know, and I think that those are the guys that, that kind of looked like to kind of really drag other guys into that same position. I think, you know, even the year before we had John Belusha, he's one of the, he started at Quinnipiac this year as a freshman at attack. So we've had a, a string of kids go through varying levels from D3 to, to D1 all over the place. Well, you know, we've talked in the past um, on this podcast about, you know, the, the move forward to college. And I think one of the great things about where Connecticut lacrosse is, is that a lot of these kids are really good enough to go play at, at decent D3 levels. I mean, just look, 
I, I always go back to this. Personally, I was an average player and graduated from high school in 1979, and I never would have had a chance to play anywhere if I was graduating today with, with how good I was, but that's just where the game has grown over time. So the opportunities to play, whether it's D3, whether it's club, uh, just to stay with the game and enjoy it are, are there for these guys. And if they want to take advantage of it and have that be a part of their college experience, all the better for them. I think one of the great things that I learned as a parent going through my son playing and my daughter playing was that, you know, this this kind of image of the D1 dream it is not the be all and end all and that the game gives back at all levels. And I think kids and parents need to always understand that. Yeah, I tell kids all the time, it's like, D1 sounds great, but the amount of work that you actually have to put into it, I think kids sometimes overlook. And and what a D1 lacrosse player or D1 athlete can tell you is that it it really is is a full-time job. It's all-consuming. It's basically your entire time while you're up at school. Um, And and while that may sound great to, you know, put on like that type of, like a Syracuse or a Duke or Virginia jersey or Yale jersey, whatever it may be, I mean, those things are all involving. Right. They, that, that swallows your college life pretty much whole. And you really got to enjoy and love the sport to a point where it's, it's something that you're willing to kind of sacrifice. Now, I think you can get a similar experience out of a D3 team where you still are heavily invested. You still have time, but you're still able to kind of keep up on other things that you do have interest in. Yeah, I know a Division One full scholarship rower who told me that she wishes she could go back to college so she could actually go to college and not just be a, <laughs> a rower for four years. Right, exactly. Exactly. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your conference and the SCC because it's it's unique in a certain way that, it, that it's structured. A lot of teams, a lot of schools, uh, most play lacrosse. Obviously, many don't. But the scheduling always, for me at least, and I'm easily confused. But it seems to confuse a lot of people. Um, and I'm wondering how the coaches feel about uh, the way it's set up. I mean, are you the guys that set it up that way? Or, I mean, how does that scheduling and that kind of year to year, it's almost like, um, it's almost like the, the British Premier League, right? Where you're relegated down to Division Two and teams are brought up t- into Division One. H- how does that work out for you guys? Well, it's been more of a process, and this is kind of like, I guess I've been involved from the beginning since it was the original D1 and D2, and um, what the SEC had done for a while is they had adopted a tier system where you had uh, teams broken up into three different tiers. You had the Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3, Tier 1 being in the top, Tier 3 being maybe more the new, more startup programs, and you know Tier 2 being in the middle. Um, we did that for, for a number of years, well over 10 years, and what we found is that we were having, the idea was to try and keep it competitive schedule-wise. So you didn't have a tier one team like a Fairfield Prep playing like um, a tier three, tier three team like a Wilbur Cross who just kind of started out. But that game makes no sense for anybody right, when you look at it, right? So the idea was to try and get it so that, you know, Fairfield Prep plays like a Cheshire, it plays like a hand, it plays like Guilford, you know, and, and it kind of gets what it can out of the out of the league schedule. Um, what we found, though, is that the, 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 the tier two teams are having trouble trying to jump out. Right. And over that time, we only had like one or two teams that were able to do it. Um, and so we shifted most recently to like a back to like a division one, division two type thing. Um, and with the way this, the league sets up now is I think you have eight in division one and nine in division two, something like that. I think with the number of teams that we have overall in the SEC and you play everybody in your division um, and then you play two crossover games that are parallel, like across. So like number one 
in Division One plays number one and number two in Division Two, you know, as part of their crossover games. Right. And ultimately, that makes up your your league schedule. Now, it's like to me, it's 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 kind of very similar to what the old system was. It kind of just simplifies and gets rid of a, a, a tier two. You know what I mean? Or and you kind of now you have like a top and a bottom rather than three levels. I think the goal is kind of good, right? I think the idea is that they. The ADs are looking at, like, I don't want you just to play everybody. I want you to be able to go out and make games and have, you know, room on your schedule to get things that are competitive and better for you. Um, And I think that that's part of the uniqueness of lacrosse that I like a lot is that, you know, I built up some rivalries just from the ability of having some schedule flexibility to go play like a Simsbury, a Glastonbury, an East Lime, or or things like that, which, you know, helps us out. Um, So I I, I appreciate the league schedule in that respect, but at the same time, it can be somewhat uh, handcuffing when, you know, you're stuck playing teams that just it's just not competitive. You know what I mean? So that core group in the SEC has has always fielded strong teams. You know, you guys, Cheshire, Hand, uh, Xavier, obviously. And then for a long time, Amity was right in there. And and that seems to have tailed off a little bit. And, you know, as I said before, North Haven had come on and you've always had uh, Notre Dame West Haven with an ability to field, you know, uh, solid athletic, very physical teams, you know, who emerges from that group, uh, you know, to really, uh, to, to the mind knowledge. And as I go back in time, it's been a long time since anybody other than Todd heritage and that group in 2010 really truly challenged prep on a regular level. If, if I'm wrong, please let me know that I'm wrong, but yeah, you know, I think, um, go ahead. I'm looking back at like some of the things that we had here and uh, that group, that Cheshire group, I remember they beat prep three times in that year. And that was a special Cheshire team. They were, they were very talented. They ended up going on, I believe winning the state title that year too. So yes, they did. They were, they were a very talented group of kids. Um, I think, you know, that, 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 that was great for them. I think but prep is the kind of the gold standard, right? They're, they're always at least one side of that championship game for the SEC. Um, you know, and, and that's fine. And to us, I think that's actually a goal of ours to try and reach that. I mean, I think at, at the same time, I've been coaching at Gilbert for close to 15 years at this point or whatever it may be. Um, I think I've gotten to that game six times or seven times. Um, in the SEC championship game, and every time I play prep, you know what I mean? They're always um, there. So like, they're always there. So, I mean, you got to give them credit for, uh, you know, Small Kikes, obviously, them being there, building that program up, and now Graham Neamey, who I think is one of the best coaches in the state. Agreed. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, they do a good job of keeping that, you know, consistency there and, and just funneling the talent there. So, I think it's great. It's it's fun to compete against them because you know you're gonna you're gonna go against a, a very talented team. So it is one of the unique things about Connecticut um, are these conferences, and some people feel it's a bit antiquated. But you know, where does the SCC championship fall in like your goal setting compared to you know a Class M championship, and how do you how do you approach it? Is is that the pinnacle? Is the conference championship the pinnacle? Because I think there's probably plenty of people in the FCAC who would tell you that that championship almost means more to them than the state title. I, you know, I really like that one for us just because if you look at the way that's set up, it's all our neighbors, right, for the most part. I mean, you have, like, everybody there, and we all compete together for one kind of you know, specific thing. So I get that, right? And if you had to rank it, 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 it to me, it's just about the same, right? Getting one of those is 
you know, just as important as trying to get like a state title. I mean, that's like the first hurdle for us every single time. Um, I really enjoy it. I think it's, I think it's very competitive and obviously the proximity of the teams, you know, adds to that really. And I, you could see it too. I think with the FCF, which is a little different is you have kind of like those teams are kind of the elites, right? And when, when you take it, it's like an elite tournament where you take all the elite teams, stack them in, rank them and then play. It's like for them, that's like, the winner of that tournament typically is one of the people who's up for a state title anyway. It just depends on how it factors out, right? right? Yep. Um, for us, it's just another chance at a championship. We're all pretty competitive teams. Like, if it's, you know, Guilford and Madison and Cheshire and a Fairfield Prep in a, in a semifinal, just to throw out some names, like, now those are all pretty good games every time. So it's the idea is, like, well, then it has some value, right? If it was what, if it was a if it was a cakewalk, then it would be another story. You know what I mean? Sure. I can't give you the perspective maybe Prep has on it just because of the amount of success that they had. Um, but for us, it's it's obviously a hill we want to climb. I think the general consensus from people who know the teams and the, and the conferences would be that your biggest rival is Daniel Hand. And the kids from Madison and the kids from Guilford, you know, live like a driver wedge away from one another. And that, that seems to be both in youth and in high school what – what usually ends up being the biggest dogfight each year. Is that, is that Guilford's biggest rival or how do the oh, other yeah, teams shake out in terms of where the, the guys really get up to play them? Right. In terms of rivalries, it's hand and then there's everybody else. Right. Um, that's, that's really, cause we share a border. We're very similar in terms of our demographic. Our schools are very similar, right. Our, you know, our kids all relatively know each other, right? But the idea is that it's always it's always been and always has been from like, you know, from days when I even played in Guilford to to look back on like sports and stuff. But it's it's always something that has been there as our number one rival, right? It's pretty much just without question. Um and you know, it's fun because if you have that built in, it really just adds to kind of like the the overall quality of your experience, right? When you're playing in these games. It's like those those games really carry meaning for kids. When they sit on the field and they go play against the Danny Land. And the idea is like they're they're tough opponents. You know, they're very talented athletes. They're good lacrosse players. So I mean you get out there and if you're able to have some success and actually win, then that means something, you know? Yeah. Well, look, you've been there a long time, uh, since two thousand six, as you say, and you know, the game has grown the game has changed in terms of equipment. Certainly the kids have gotten better, at least in my opinion, over time. What what are the biggest changes you've seen in in the game of high school lacrosse in general, but specifically here in Connecticut? You know, I think with the emphasis of everything trying to go to protect players and, and obviously be mindful of head injuries, the game changed significantly in terms of what it used to be, where it was more of a I, I think at times you could get away with more physical contact and having it be more of like a hockey almost type sport where, you know, there's collisions and things. And now to me it it, it seems more like a like a basketball type of approach where the game is heavily based around speed, skill, um, you know, teamwork and everything else like that, where I don't, that to me seems to be more vital than anything else. So if anything, it hasn't changed too, too much. If I go back and even think about the way that we used to script things before and how we kind of set things up, if anything, we, we, we comprised it more based on speed. It's play fast, throw the ball hard, everything like that kind of factors in, which I think if you were to go and teach that back more, even back in earlier days, that would still make sense. That would still compute. You know what I mean? So that good lacrosse is good lacrosse across generations, I think, no matter what. Um, but I think now it's really – I think the game just has sped up over time. 
right? More so than it used to be. But, the, you know, there's a lot less whistles with, from the refs. They let you play a little bit more. Uh, you don't have to constantly touch it in the box, which I went back and watched an old film watching it. It's like, why do we keep touching it in the box? It's like every, because every time you have to step out, you have to get the count. But now it's like that, that, that being gone is actually, you didn't think about it, just added to the amount of time that you're playing rather than just kind of. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember when I got back into it uh, after, after moving back to the Northeast after living uh, in the South for a while. And when I played, you know, you could, you could kill a penalty and get a guy out of the box by running it down to the to your offensive end and stepping in the box, and your guy was automatically released. That that went away, but there was no stepping it in the box every ten seconds. And and I remember people saying, "Get a touch, get a touch," and I thought it was about passing the ball more, which of course I'm I'm all for passing the ball more. And then I realized you had to get in the box every ten seconds, and I kept wondering what the point was if we're actually trying to score goals. Um, back to your point about the physicality, I think we see this especially at the Division One level, that the higher the skill level, the less physical you actually need to be. And, and I think that might be one of the things that has changed here is because as kids' fundamentals get better, there's less emphasis on, you know, brute force and massive body checks, or there might even be an awareness of there's no reason to, you know, take a guy out just because somebody threw him a buddy pass. Do, do you see that happening? Yeah, I, I know one thing that, I'm, that stuck in my head because I, I was actually one of the kids that started playing lacrosse late. I didn't start until I was in high school. And then uh, one of my coaches in high school, um, Coach D'Elia, um, the local guy, actually the coach at Alberta's Magnetown, he told me, he goes, the main difference between high school and college lacrosse is the ball's never on the ground. He goes, the college the ball's always in the air. It's zipping around. There, there's tons of skilled players everywhere, right? In high school, it depends on where you are and where you're playing. You know, for us, we were a start-out program at the time. The ball looked like we were playing field hockey half the time, right? So I think that that being the case, it always led to kind of like more ground ball, ball scrums and things like that that were taking place. When you're, when you're in college and the ball's moving around, or if you're in like, you know, playing a high-level lacrosse, even in high school, and the ball's moving around, there's no opportunities for those types of things, right? The, right. the buddy passes aren't there because, you know, they're not getting floated. They're getting thrown hard, you know what I mean? And, and things like that happens where it's, you know, you just remove that variable from the equation, right? And so there's less opportunity for those things to take place. And I think it's essential for the gro continued growth of the game that, quite frankly, so parents don't see their kids getting, you know, wrecked with body checks and take them out of the sport. Um and, you know, if the if the game is played cleaner with an emphasis on safety at a younger age, we're going to see kids allowed to stay in the game longer. And I know that's happening uh, in football and it's happening in hockey. And I, I think it's one of the byproducts of of the emphasis that they've placed on these safety rules. Um, I think it's just kind of common sense, too. Yeah. Well, God forbid that takes root. Um <laughs> Listen, my last question uh, is something that I've been thinking about a long time, really, since I went through the process with my own son. Uh, the, the emphasis on club lacrosse, um, and not just for college recruitment, but at an earlier age, after the youth season, uh, certainly during high school, but just as a method to get better has, you know, has been really the, the wave that has been washing over us for the past 10, 12 years. 
is that ever going to go the way of soccer where it actually becomes more important to play with a summer club team than it does for your own high school? Yeah, I think um, this can relate back a little bit to uh, some of the things we talked about with the league, right, and, and, and the rivalries and things like that. Where, um, granted, I think what you said, like a lot of the stuff with the SEC could be viewed as being antiquated, but it also can be viewed as being tradition, right? And to me, those are some of the key elements you need to kind of keep the <clears throat> the vitality of like a high school league alive, right? And for, I, I don't think that a club team necessarily can reproduce that type of feeling, emotion, you know, rivalry or things like that, the same level that a high school can, right? Where to me, that's that's still something that I, I value a lot about high school is the fact that you're able to kind of go out and play against another town and, and another rival, and, and it really does have meaning and value to the kids. Now, the thing that I find that's great about club being a member, you know, coaching those for a long time, is we were able to take, you know, groups of Connecticut kids and go out and play some of the best teams in the country at that age level. And that's something that the high school kids can't necessarily do, depending upon where you are. Obviously, if you're in Darien, maybe you can. But, you know, if we're in, like, a new town, a Guilford, or anything else like that, we're kind of stuck playing each other. Um, but I think the club does have value. I think they just offer different values, right, where I think that you get a better maybe um, college type of recruiting process at a club 100%. I mean, I, I don't I don't think kids get recruited from high school alone anymore. I, don't even, I can't even remember the last time that actually happened. Um, but at the same time, you don't get the same type of rivalry, camaraderie, and things like that potentially that you would from, say, a high school team compared to a club team. So I think that they're, they offer different things of value, I think. But you, here's obviously one thing is you, if you're going to be good, you need to keep playing, right? And you can't play year-round for your high school, so you do need to find ways and avenues to do that. Does that mean you have to go and play for a club team? No. You can do camps. You can, you know, you can do other things around that you can try and find that are helpful, but I think the club team does provide a structure and a framework where you're able to play, say, if you wanted to in a fall or a winter or a summer, right, just to try and keep on improving, where I think, you know, obviously high school can't do that. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. The, the club experience was fantastic as long as people kept their focus and the kids remain uh, engaged with, quite frankly, the guys that they grew up with. Uh, you always hear players talk about their high school experience and not really being able to match that in college where they played with guys that they had grown up with their whole lives and how great that was and playing against their neighbors, as, as you stated before. So, you know, club and those club teams and that experience is really essential to get better and certainly to get recognized if you plan on playing at the next level. But in my opinion, and I think you agree here is that it will never take the place of, of the high school experience, wherever, wherever that happens to be. No, you know, I don't think it has to it. It's like, I was, I'm looking at it. It's like, I don't think it's either the way, the way I view it. It's not one or the other. You know what I mean? The way I look at it, it's, it's one that complements the other in both cases. You know what I mean? And I, and I think if you keep that type of framework going forward, I know, like a hockey, you get the club teams to try and replace the hockey teams, but I think that that's because you have to play at the same time. You can't, you know what I mean? Yep. Where here, it's like you don't you don't need to play at the same time. You have a whole summer, right? And I think if the club teams stick to that, and then you know, obviously the high school teams stick to their season in the spring, there's no need for the for the crossover or any other type of like problem well, like, that would be. Like I always, like I always said to my son, is the day you stop loving playing the game is the day you should stop playing the game. So as long as you're digging it, keep on doing it. Exactly. 
Hey, Brian, thank you very much for coming by today. It's uh, been a great conversation. I've been watching you coach uh, at both the club and the high school level for a long time. I've always had great admiration for your programs and the job that you do with the guys. And uh, uh, keep it up, and we look forward to seeing you on a field very soon. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great to get a take from a veteran coach from outside of Fairfield County on what makes the game so special in his town and in general. And while most of the SEC has spent the last 14 years looking up at Fairfield Prep, the success of the other teams in the conference like Guilford in fielding competitive, solid, and successful teams is what makes the game what it is in our state. And it's not just the top of the top programs. We all need to remember that. I'm Woody Thompson, hoping you can join us again for another edition of Lax's Life.